Welcome to a healthy bite. You're one nibble closer to a more satisfying way of life, a healthier you, and bite-sized bits of healthy motivation. Now let's dig in on the dish with Rebecca Huff. Mark Deal, you are an author of many books, I see. Um, nothing like this, though. Can you tell us just a wee little bit about the other type of books that you write? Yeah, um, it all started with this one, actually, even though this one comes out later than the, the, the first ones I wrote. Um, when I lived in Asia and I experienced the, the difference in culture, not just in Korea as in, in this book, but I, I lived in Japan uh, for a while. I had Japanese roommates all through college exclusively. Uh, I was always part of some Asian community, always kind of on the fringe, but I, that was where I lived. And so many other people when I lived in Asia, other Americans, for example, other foreigners, would see the things that I note in the book, that the really different culture uh, attributes of the culture, and say, oh, well, you know, they'll catch up with us. They're just behind us. And I, I kept looking and I was thinking, well, this is a top-down hierarchy. And it's, it's not fun to live, you know, it, it, people talk about like being in the army or something, you know, you have this absolute chain of command that you must follow in every circumstance. It's not a fun way to be, um, but it is efficient and it gets stuff done. And I was looking around in, in these Asian countries saying, this is a, a society that has adapted to the way these people live here, which is they have huge populations and they're crammed between mountains and the ocean and they have no resources really whatsoever. So this is the way that you have all of these people crammed in together. The, the best example is the uh, square watermelons in Japan. Right. They grow them in these little Tupperware things. Yeah. And then you can stack them and you can put them on a shelf and they fit nice and orderly into a, into a crowded space. And, that's, and then you see the kids outside the school learning to bow in unison to their teacher at five in the morning. And uh, okay, I, they're making square watermelons. They're making everybody fit into this society. So I came back and I wrote a dystopian fiction about, well, when we catch up with them, are we going to have those kinds of things? And so my dystopias are about what happens when American multinational corporations, which is really where all the power is today, start becoming more like those societies. And then interestingly, when I came back, I went to law school and I ended up working in a big multinational law firm and the culture was very similar to what I experienced in Asia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, when I, after I read your book, um, Stealing Cinderella, which is your story, and we'll get into that, I thought, well, what else has he written? I might wanna read all of his other books because this is my kind of book. And so I got on your website and I was like, yeah, no, I don't think this is what I was expecting. So, um, but I get it. You wrote the other books and then because of what a fascinating story, true life story that you and your wife experienced. I mean, just the things that you went through. I know everyone that has heard the story kept telling you, you've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. You've got to write a book. And hence you wrote the book. And this book is Stealing Cinderella, How I Became an International Fugitive for Love. 
And it's not just a love story, which it is kind of a little bit of a love story, but it's not the ooey gooey romance novel at all, which I liked and appreciated that you were very tasteful about the details that you shared in your book. But it is a very um, telling insight into a completely different culture. And another thing that I really appreciated about your book is that we see that someone who grows up with a parent who has a, you, you say your mother was not diagnosed, but you believe she had borderline personality disorder, maybe a little bipolar depression. Um, uh, yeah, it was uh, borderline, I, I yeah. believe. And I didn't think that at the time. Um, <laughs> you know, of course in the not. book, I could describe her behavior. Right. Um, I came up with that many years. I was about 30 years old when Jennifer's good friend, who was a, a, a psychologist, uh, Jennifer was describing my mother's behavior because she thought there was something more. I used to just say, oh, my mom's paranoid. You know, I didn't know what to say. And so over time, uh, it came out that, well, okay, that probably is, is what it is. And that was in the early days of the internet. And sure enough, as you could get on the internet and you'd find these checklists, and then the checklist was just, it was like ringing a bell going down everything. Right. Um, yeah. And from what I read in the book, you know, as you described your interactions with your, your mother, it did seem like, you know, maybe she does have borderline personality disorder, you know, just from, like I said, from what I've read from it and the way you described it. But I love that the book shows people that you can come from a very tough childhood and you can go on and have a successful life. You can have a successful marriage. You can have a successful career. And you don't have to let those things hold you back. And so I thought it was just a triumphant story on your part and on Jennifer's part. Um, but I have to admit to you that I also found reading about the Korean culture, even back, what were, what were the years, the time period when you were there? 93 and 94. 93. That's what I thought. I thought it was in the early 90s, but just um, how the culture was then. Because if you watch, and I'm not sure if Jennifer watches any Korean dramas, but the culture hasn't changed a lot, but maybe a little. Um, it's, I, I don't know. I, I, I will, I think it's important to say why I'm uniquely unqualified to, to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one reason is we left 25 years ago and we've never been back mm -hmm. um, and we'll never go back. Um, and the other is that those shows, um, back when I was there, it was the other way. The Americans had the TV shows that we were kind of pushing on their culture and saying, this is how you should be. Um, and Korea came up with a really neat solution to that, which was to make these shows for export. So I don't know necessarily because when you look at those things and the K-pop and all of this, I don't know how much of that is made for their domestic market because what they've discovered is that they can have a product that takes very little material input and they can sell it all over the world. So they don't need a lot of resources to export shows mm -hmm. for different markets. Oh, and so I agree. I honestly, I don't know if those, if those dramas show what's going on there or not. I, I like to think that there are certain ways that... <laughs> That they're open, and, and Jennifer was, you know, exposed to different cultures, reading literature growing up. 
Um, so I would think that um, in her case, we said, oh, well, she was exposed to other ideas from the outside world and that changed the way she was. So maybe it did. Maybe the society did change. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that there could be a certain amount of propaganda to the dramas. Um, just like whenever you watch some Chinese um, TV and stuff like that, I think there's just a certain amount of propaganda that you expect. But as we see, it is your book. There was a lot of insight into the culture and things that I think a lot of people just don't realize because especially growing up and living in America, I think a lot of uh, young people college age would not take kindly to their parents telling them what their career was going to be when they grew up or who they would marry. Right. Um, and I grew up with a very unstable person as the only other human being in my household. And it, it especially as a little kid with no power to do anything, it left me with... I guess there's no other way to say it with a, with a contempt for authority. Um, so, you know, I, I went to college and I was just kind of this hoodlum kid and I made it through college and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I, I went to Korea thinking I was just going to get into business and English teaching at the time, they didn't require any credentials. So that I just went there to do that because it got me in the door and I was going to look around, but I didn't understand what I was dealing with. Even though I'd known a lot of Asian people, even though I'd, I'd spent a lot of time, you know, I, I uh, learned some Japanese for a while. I helped people, uh, you know, practice English and we'd hang out and drink and, you know, all kinds of stuff back home. But I never really was exposed to that culture, that really strict domineering culture. And as somebody that came from my background to be exposed to that then was just this huge, shocking, and, and I, you know, I was 23 at the time, so I really did have the, the typical American idea that, oh, mm -hmm. well, they'll catch up with us. They're wrong. And it took me a while to say, oh, well, this fits for them. And that made it so much worse to be there because they're not going to, I didn't see them waking up. I saw them perfectly happy with the system that they had. Right. It worked for them. Yeah, and I got that too in the um, conversations you would have with your students as you were teaching English in Korea. They were perfectly, I mean, maybe not perfectly happy. There were times when you talked about, for example, I think one of your students was going to become a banker and he wasn't super happy about that, but he, everyone learned to accept eventually, I suppose. Um, although Jennifer is quite a different story, um, she didn't just fit into that peg and you know she decided to do you do you think if you hadn't arrived in korea what a different life she would have had yeah and and I, that's a really interesting question you know because she still had that personality you know that i think really I, i'm proud of the way i carried that through in the book because she is this very independent spunky uh intelligent woman and she was being groomed to just sort of accept a, a second place marriage and fill her little niche in the whole system. Um, but it was pretty clear that she wasn't really going to be willing to do that. So she would have had a different life, but I don't know how it would have been if she would have stayed in Korea. Right. 
Well, it, you know, it's something to think about, you know, as I was reading it, I just kept thinking, you know, about the things that she went through with her family and being the second daughter, that's hard enough, you know, because the first daughter gets everything, you know, and then having a, a brother coming behind her, of course, he's a boy. So that's great. She had nothing really going for her in her family. So she was just kind of there on right. her own. And so yeah. when you came along, I mean, I think that brought a perspective to her that was just what she needed at the time. So, yeah, there's always the question of like, why do good girls like the bad boys? And uh, <laughs> you definitely portrayed yourself as a bad boy in this <laughs> in this book. <laughs> but you know, the banana bad boys peel experience. The <laughs> the what experiment with the banana peel i was like okay now this is one i've never heard of before yeah i figured it out i solved the mystery yeah it's crazy <laughs> crazy well i wanted to ask you a little bit more about your childhood so you know your mom had what you consider to be borderline personality disorder and so it was a struggle and then you had your dad who was kind of a, just kind of off doing his own thing because he was remarried and he just was distracted by the rest of his family, we'll say, right? All right. Uh, so <laughs> you kind of were left on your own and you had to be a pretty naturally smart kid because you said that a lot of times you weren't even able to turn in your homework and you still did really well on standardized tests. Although when it came to getting the grades, when the homework was included, you had struggled through a lot of that. How much did your um, parents distract you from having a normal childhood? How much did they distract you from just succeeding in school and all the things that a normal childhood would involve? Yeah, I, um, I definitely grew up, it, it felt like growing up on a volcano kind of thing, you know, it's a, I never knew who I was going to be talking to because my mother's moods would shift so fast and so dramatically that whoever I was, uh, you know, or, uh, whatever my situation was, uh, would be totally dependent on whatever mood she happened to be in for whatever reason that, that she happened to be in it. Um, it made me good at trying to make people feel different ways because I, I, the only skill that ever paid off in my life growing up was manipulating my mother into feeling certain ways so that I could control what was happening in my environment. And the, the two things I've found to that that skill was helpful for was when I was practicing trial law uh, and when I write books, because both of those, you're pretty much manipulating people's moods. This is your time to feel outraged. This is your time to feel whatever. And so those, those became long-term things that I, I found adaptations to use. But, you know, growing up in that environment, you don't just sit down and whip out your math book and do some problems while you have cookies at the table. I saw my friends do that kind of stuff. That was never going to be me. Um, the moment I got home, it was all about doing this manipulation, keeping control of the situation as best I could, watching what she did and trying to adapt and and send out the right kinds of signals to put her back on a path. Or if she's raging about something, then I can deflect that into raging about something that's not me or whatever the case was. But that took 100% of my energy. So 
I got into uh, uh, junior high and uh, my first semester of junior high, I think we had trimesters, uh, but I ended up failing half of seventh grade. And I was not a dumb kid. And I had, you know, in the 90s, easily 95, 97% on all these basic skills tests. Uh, but I'm flunking, what was it? I got like a D minus in reading. Um, I failed global studies. How's that? Um, so yeah, it was, and it was always about homework. You didn't go home and do the things you were supposed to do. So you're bad. You need to learn how to do that. And how was I going to do that? You know, there was no emphasis placed on that. The emphasis was placed on, I feel bad right now, fix me. <laughs> or, or I'm angry at you for no reason. And now you're on in defensive mode. So I ended up failing half of seventh grade and half of ninth grade before I kind of figured out how to make it all fit together. Yeah. So at some point you feel like you learn to manage everything better. So basically from the time you were about 12, when your parents split up, did six. They split up? six. Wow. So that was pretty early. So all through this time you were basically managing your mom because it was just the two of you. Right. Right. No siblings, no, no father in the house. Yeah. So that was a huge burden on you. And I know I've read uh, quite a bit about people with some of these um, disorders. And I know that there are people who have children who grow up in these situations, a lot of times will have PTSD, um, irrational fears, irrational, um, not, not irrational if you're the person who's grown up with that, but so how did you grow up to be such a fearless? I mean, because when I was reading your plan with your motorcycle, which kudos, that was pretty cool um, <laughs> to go get Jennifer. If something happened, you were going to go get her. And I was just like, wow, this guy is fearless. And to think that you came from this childhood and you're just like, hey, I'm going to go do this. Um, yeah. The situation you're talking about is um, uh, the North Korean leader Kim Il-sung died and nobody knew what was gonna happen. And so the military on both sides of the border started stirring up and you would, and on our side, you would see the American fighter jets go by and there'd be attack helicopters in formation rattling the windows. And they said at the time, cause Seoul is the capital city, it's huge. It, I don't, it might have 10 million people. Uh, but it is right on the North Korean border. And estimates were that it would fall within four hours. And so I was helpless because Jennifer was up there at this teacher training program. And uh, the only thing I could think to do was I had this little motorcycle and I rebuilt it to be this Mad Max kind of thing <laughs> uh, in, on, the, on the assumption that... Uh, it would be better suited if I have to drive four hours uh, up, to, up to Seoul and collect Jennifer and drive back. That was the plan. Uh, and it was absolutely crazy because, you know, you're, you're watching these helicopters the size of a bus go by uh, constantly. And there are guys in trucks holding machine guns, wearing gas masks, driving around town. Uh, and I'm going to drive up there on this little 125cc motorcycle and get her uh, from a, while there's an ongoing North Korean invasion. It was utterly insane. 
Um, but the reason for it, I, it wasn't courage so much as I was afraid of something else, right? I never had that before. I never had a stable person who would always be there for me, who would always have my back, who would always take my side and, and be that, that kind of support and that kind of um, partner that I, I had never imagined really being able to do that before. So it wasn't that I was so brave, I'm going to go get her. It was that I needed her that much. And I was not going to let anything take her from me, including North Korea. And fortunately, they didn't invade because if they had, I would have been vaporized, <laughs> as would, you know, as probably would have Jennifer. But uh, I was ready because as insane as it was, it seemed perfectly rational that that was important enough to do. Right. Well, I mean, even though you're saying that it was based on your need, there still had to be a certain amount of courage and fearlessness that came with the thought that you were going to do that. And I mean, just the, the one, um, I say scene, because in my mind, I was basically, you, you wrote this book so vividly that when I was at the end of it, I wanted to start again. Like, you know, when you see that really good movie and you're like, the movie's over and you're like, yeah, who can I come back and see this with? That's how <laughs> I felt when I got to the end of this. Um, so I was like ready to start over and read it again. But in the scene where you, um, well, I don't want to give away too much but you and Jennifer get on the, on the bike and you're getting away. And, um, I, I mean, that's fearless. That was, that was brave. Oh, uh, well, thank you. Um, especially for saying that, that you like the book. <laughs> um, it, it, it was, it wasn't hard though at the time because there was only, I mean, in the, in the motorcycle scene, um, and I can just give a little bit of detail about it. Uh, at one point when her family had found out that we were dating and taken extreme measures um, to, uh, to collect her back and, and keep her under control, we got to a point where there was literally only one way out. So all of that stuff, there was no like worrying about what decision to make. It was always at every step, there was one way out. There was one way that we might be able to stay together. And, and in Korea, because of the way the system works and because of the way her um, family was integrated into the society at a very high level, um, the entire society was against us. And so we did have to if we were going to stay together, we had to fight every step of the way because at any point, if we became separated, that would be the end. I would never see her again. And it's hard to explain. That's why there's so much in the book about the culture and the way I wanted to show that this is how people really believe. It's, it wasn't just her family. It was a system that made us the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And even now when and Jennifer just had a, a diversity seminar at her job and uh she was she told this story um uh, she was on this panel for diversity and things and she was saying that uh 
you know, uh, most of it was about race. And she said, well, in my case, it was because of who I choose to love. So in her case, she doesn't relate so much to people who experience just abject racism. Although that was happening. I mean, we were harassed every single day for being together on the street. But moreover, it was her family that turned against her because of her lifestyle choice. So she actually relates better to the, um, what's the LGBTQ crowd? <laughs> um, because I always get the letters mixed up, but I think that's the way people say it these days. Um, but that's, that's, that's the crowd we tend to relate to a lot because they've had those same kinds of issues that we had. Oh, it was the, the hateful looks and the, you know, Right, or the uh, or the parents who just refuse to accept that that's what you're going to do, or that that is a decision that's up to you. And in certain parts of of our country, there are still uh, places where that would be really hard to to have that kind of of to be able to make that kind of choice for your own life. And that right, was what we had there. Yeah, society was definitely against you guys in the beginning. Have you seen an improvement since? I mean, it's been how many years have you guys been married now? Uh, 25. We just went back to Hong Kong to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. I saw that, uh, I think, on maybe your Twitter or something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we went back and stayed in actual hotels. Um, and it doesn't, I don't think it ruins the story too much to say that we ended up getting chased out of the country. It is actually the first scene of the book. Right. That I put out of order so people know that there is hope that we do get out. Um, and the end of that flight that is in the first scene was Hong Kong. And we had a whole new set of problems there. Uh, but we certainly weren't staying in nice hotels. We were uh, close to starving for most of the yeah. time. We were there. Yeah, I was, it, it sounded crazy living off of peanut butter for that long. I mean, that's, that's, that's love. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you talk about um, how being damaged doesn't make you unlovable. Would you say that it makes you harder to love? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, it, and, you know, frankly, it makes me harder to do everything. You know, it makes me harder to, to uh, do business, you know, because I, 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 I tend to be really forceful and really uh, pushy in those kinds of things. It was, it was not actually too bad for being a trial lawyer or a, a litigator. Um, but yeah, it does. It, it gives me a, a complicated, difficult personality. But it also, and that's where I go back to that need, you know, a lot of the things that I did that, that I'm actually quite proud of, I didn't really do thinking, oh, I have to be brave. I'm going to, you know, do the right thing. At every step of the way, it was, I'm broken, I'm damaged enough that I really, really need this person to be that other half. And, and we became something else that, that strengthened each other. And so being damaged in certain ways, if you meet people who are damaged in not necessarily the same way, but in compatible ways. Compatible, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in our case, Jennifer and I uh, bonded. We had different family experiences but both of those experiences led us to be pretty much obsessed with fairness 
and which is actually a terrible way to go through life, obsessed with fairness. Because yeah, life's not fair. <laughs> right, exactly. It's always awful. <laughs> you know, there's always something that somebody's getting cheated or so, you know, something's not right. So if you are a person who's obsessed with fairness, um, you have to, I think, bond with another person who also is because otherwise one of you will be constantly worried about that and the other one won't understand why. <laughs> Talk about incompatible. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're both obsessed with fairness, then actually, okay, well, at every step of the way, whatever problem comes up, you have this basis of like, well, we're not going to be an unfair situation to each other like we were growing up. You know, so I have to ask, because I know that you guys have a daughter, how did that obsession with fairness, how did that work out with parenting? Because life is not fair. And <laughs> sometimes our kids want us to, everything has to be fair. Everything has to be even. Steven, we, that was probably easier with one kid than it would have been if you had two or three. Um, so maybe that was a good idea only having one, but yes. yeah, as a parent, <laughs> Yeah, because it's exhausting to do yeah. that, to be fair, you know, and, and that was, that was a huge part. Um, and for much of our daughter's uh, childhood, I was the one home with her. I, I always did try to do that. And it's an exhausting way to be, is to try and show, here's why this is, you know, happening. And it feels not fair, but it is because you have this parent forcing you to do things you don't want or even seem unfair on the surface. But... I also should say I got an I got an easy break because our daughter actually went to college early. So um, at 13, she started full time college and moved into a special dorm for these kids who are uh, on their on their own. Basically, they it's a special program for girls, and they had about 20 kids from all over the world uh, living in this special dorm on a college campus of the uh, Mary Baldwin University in Virginia. And uh, so I didn't have to do that so much at the time that most people, you know, the teen years would be when that would really come back to bite me, right? And most of the time that became the school's responsibility and they could be more arbitrary and, and they didn't feel the, the compulsion to explain every last little thing. The way right. I, I bet that was an adjustment for her. Uh, it was. It was a really great experience um, for her. But uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was a little hard being 13 all the way. Uh, it was a, I think it's a thousand mile drive. We're in Maine. Wow. So it was, she was literally a thousand miles away from home uh, starting at 13. Of course, she came home in the summers. But, I, you know, I, I say that only because I did get an easy you know, a, a good bounce there in the parenting department. Now, Mark, that's not fair. <laughs> I had six kids and I didn't get to send any of them away early. <laughs> that's not fair. See, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, I agree with your idea about your spouse strengths becoming your own by default. And this is something that my therapist and I talk about a lot. And it seems like this is something that you and Jennifer discovered right off the bat. Did that come naturally because of your backgrounds? Or was that something you talked about and discussed a lot? How did that come to play? Yeah, well, it was kind of, it came up a lot because it was constantly part of what was happening. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously when I was in Korea 
and I didn't speak Korean. I started to learn Korean. She stopped me from learning Korean because people were saying bad things to us on the street, and she thought I'd attack them and get deported, which I, honestly I probably would have. Sounds like um, it. <laughs> but uh, so I depended on her for just really basic things, getting around and and you know, finding the foods I needed to find and, you know, um, making just basic travel arrangements to come see her when she was studying in Seoul for that time. And, you know, just things like that. Um, and then of course, when we came here, that role was reversed and I was the local tour guide. Um, so there were some practical matters in it. Um, and then there are also some things that, um, that are that are different uh, about us. She's incredibly logical and practical. Um, she's uh, she believes in fairness, but she doesn't get worked up about it. And I do. I, I get mad and I fight right away and I you know dig in. And she's always very calm and very organized and very precise in what she does. So that kind of situation helps because there are times when actually you want somebody to stand up ready to fight. And, and actually other times you really want somebody who's gonna calculate all the probabilities and decide it's not worth doing. Um, and so those kinds of things, we really fit well together. And it, it only works, I think, if you have people, a person, who you respect their opinion and you know how they think. So I know how Jennifer thinks and I respect it, even though we don't always think the same way. Mm -hmm. um, I respect the way, her process of how she gets to where she is. And I trust it a little more than I trust my own process. So even though I'm the one who reacts really fast, she's the one who has that logic and it's kind of like the two halves of the brain mm -hmm. and you know if you're really impulsive and you're really um you know really passionate and impulsive and and sort of uh uh on autopilot um and then you have somebody else who you can really trust and you say oh well okay you know the logical side of our com combined brain is now talking and i should listen to that that would be a good thing to listen to mm -hmm. so we've just evolved over the years into i i know the kinds of decisions she's going to make ahead of time and so nothing she does really surprises me and even even though i tend to be more impulsive nothing i do really surprises her either yeah, well, it seemed like from reading the book, it just seemed like you guys were on the same page from the very beginning. I mean, from the moment you met all the way through, um, I'm thinking of the uh, one part in the story where you're in front of the jewelry store and the guy comes up to you wow. and you, you immediately have a plan. You're going to do this thing and she just goes right along with you, like <laughs> almost like she's reading your mind. So to me, as I was reading it, I was just like, wow, these people are so made for each other. It just seemed like you were always on the same page. Yeah, and, and I think that comes from, from leaning on each other. You know, it, because even even right at the start, we were relying on each other to to be there and we could count on that and you could feel it. And in a society where the entire uh, sum total of, of the people that you meet uh, are, are mean to you, 
it does. It, it gives you that kind of, it's like testing the, the, the strength of the bond, you know, because there's this constant assault on it. Mm -hmm. And so the bond didn't result from all of those trials and tribulations, but the bond we formed as we went through those over and over, we proved to each other, oh, I'm with somebody who will endure that to be with me. So after a while, you start to see, okay, there's really nothing that's going to take this person away from me willingly mm -hmm. um, or, or change her mind um, uh, about what we're doing. And so, yeah, I, the, the bond came first, but all of those attacks gave us the chance without really realizing that's what we were doing, gave us the chance to prove to each other that this was worth having. Made for a very secure relationship, I think. Yeah, that was beautiful to read about. Well, I wanted to ask you one more question um, before we wrap up. So I was thinking about if the roles were reversed and I'm thinking of your childhood now. Um, so if the roles were reversed and say you were the parent or let's just make it anonymous, there's a parent and the child maybe has this borderline personality disorder. Um, how do you recommend or even say your sister or your brother, or someone you know in your family that you feel obligated to have in your life has something like this and you need some boundaries. How do you go about setting healthy boundaries? I mean, I know you probably, you don't really spend much time with your mom. Do you at all anymore? No, in fact, um, I found it impossible to set boundaries in my case. Um, and that partially was because um, she didn't think there was anything wrong with, uh, you know, and I should, I should explain, the situation might have been, um, at one point, uh, my mother decided that um, my daughter's ice skating lessons were too expensive and we were wasting our money on them. And so over the course of a single day, I had, I think around six phone calls from her. And she would send my stepfather out on some errand so that she could call me without him knowing that she was calling me six times. So it was this kind of behavior. And, and that was the, the final day that I decided I, I couldn't because there was no boundary I could set. So the only thing I could do was cut the tie. Mm -hmm. And I did that. And the, the reason is I was cleaning aquariums and my daughter had a pet frog that got into the water because I kept running as I was, as I was doing other stuff, I was running through all these arguments that I could say back to her about something, you know, this issue that she had just decided to make an issue for herself. It had nothing to do with her. And I was, I was busy thinking about all of these arguments. I could say this and I'm going to say that, and I'm going to control the way she thinks about it because if she gets off on a tangent like this, it, and I just went off and off and off. Right back to your childhood. Right. And uh, the, the frog got into the bucket that I dumped down the toilet. And so my, my daughter's beloved pet frog with a name that she cared for very much um, suffocated in a pitch black sewer pipe. Uh, and I realized that I might have burnt the house down. I might have crashed the car thinking about all that. And all of a sudden I had my own life that I built and I couldn't have that anymore. And so I just stopped 
and it got really wild for a while. She would, uh, she sent uh, letters and, you know, at first we would read them and then eventually I would just send them back unopened. And then she would start to send packages to our daughter, gifts, and we would send them back. Uh, and then she would send packages where the entire outside, the entire brown cardboard box was covered with explanations of why we were so mean to her and what did I do wrong to you that you, you know, so the mailman is seeing these crazy things. <laughs> um, and that never really stopped. And, and um, so in my case, I decided that the best thing to do was just to stop it because I really believed it was in my own, like the, the, the safety and stability of my own family interest to, to stop with the crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but it was not, I, I can't recommend that to everybody um, because it, it's not as easy of, you know, like I didn't really understand when I did that, that she was never going to look and say, oh, well, maybe there is a problem with my behavior. Right. That but never, you had tried uh, boundaries before. Right. It wasn't like, you know, one day you just cut her off. I mean, you had tried to set boundaries before. What right. did that look and, like? Uh, you know, with her, uh, even something as simple as setting a lunch date, you couldn't do. Mm -hmm. Because she would say, oh, we used to live in Chicago, which was very close to where she lived. And uh, she would say, oh, well, we're coming into Chicago. It was a four-hour drive from Iowa City. Uh, and, and we'll meet you for, uh, for lunch at noon at this place, okay. So then she would show up at 9.30 in the morning and say, oh, well, we're so tired. We're just gonna get breakfast and we can skip lunch. We'll see you for breakfast. Uh, so why don't you meet us at 10 at such and such place? And then it would be at the breakfast, she would say, oh, well, we're gonna go here and there and we'll see you for dinner tonight. And so what, what had started out as a lunch date would then become all of these other times that was filling up the space and if you would try to say ahead of time look the only time I can see you is noon and then she would do the same stuff and then you would have a big explosion mm -hmm. um, or you would meet her for the breakfast and say well we got dinner plans we came all the way and she would you know have this meltdown, meltdown. in the middle of the restaurant crying and, and sobbing and you know there are a hundred people in some Chicago restaurant wondering what I'm doing to this poor old lady. Uh, so, you know, there was just, even something as simple as a lunch date you can't set. So things about the holiday isn't gonna go the way you want, or, you know, this is a bad week for you to visit or whatever was just, it was worse than not having said anything at all. Mm -hmm. But the other side of it is, after all of this, with, with cutting her off, uh, her husband never understood that. He he didn't see that there was a problem with her. And, you know, they had a funeral for her. She died recently, uh, uh, this uh, uh, March, last March. And it was the first time I could go back to my hometown. I hadn't been there in over 10 years because she had such strong stalker instincts that if I were anywhere near, uh, or if I, or if somebody she knew, like somebody she worked with saw me, it would blow up into another whole big situation. So I just avoided my own hometown for at least 10 years. But when I went back, the people who knew her from work didn't know she was like this. Um, 
even her husband, because she was very manipulative and found ways to hide what she was doing to me from him, uh, held it against me because I, I closed the door. And I told him I would see him separately, but he didn't want to see me separately. He wanted to placate her and bring her to us. So cutting ties seems like a really easy thing to do, but there are a lot of long-term things that come with it too. And I, I couldn't recommend it to anybody. Everybody has to kind of decide what they want to do. Mm -hmm. and, and in my mother's case, she didn't know she was doing this. She didn't know how destructive she was. The most, the, the thing she was af the most afraid of was being abandoned. And that was what I inflicted upon her. And in spite of the fact that she was crazy, she loved me. And so another way that that manifested, that decision to cut those ties with her manifested is that I have the rest of my life to know that she died or that I, I actually saw her a, a day before she died, but um, that she spent her last 10 years in excruciating pain because I decided I couldn't handle it anymore. Did she ever go see a therapist? Did she ever try to see if maybe there was some valid reason that she was behaving this way? I saw lots of therapists. I probably saw four, probably five therapists, I would say, growing up. And it was always the same MO. I would get brought in, I'm eight years old, and we're here because Mark is, you know, this problem child, and he's so vicious and mean to his mother all the time. And, you know, and my mother, you know, would be a snotty crying mess by the end of it. Telling well, what how, about her? Did she see a therapist? Well, no. Well, I got brought in for this uh, kind of stuff. I would sit there, and she would be there. Uh, and then... Uh, the therapist would start asking her questions about stuff. And then I would never see that therapist anymore. And then we'd wait a year or whatever, and then there'd be some other problem, and I'd have to go back in the same pattern. So once they started saying, well, maybe there's something else, then, you know, we didn't, we didn't get any traction after that. Mm -hmm. So she so, really didn't want to recognize that she could have anything to do with this behavior. And, and in fact, even just saying something like, you know, if we make a lunch date, please keep it. I can't, you know, I, I find that when you do this, moving the time around and, and squeezing in, because basically what that means is it wasn't just taking the, the morning, the, the breakfast time now, it was that we cleared our calendar for the lunch time. So instead of meeting us for lunch, she got to wipe out our whole day. And that made her feel very important that she could block out an entire day of our time mm -hmm. and then come back every weekend to do it again. Um, so when you would point out that that's a little manipulative, you would have an explosion, you would have a public scene. So the, the idea that she would go and, and tell somebody else, you know, oh, well, I have a problem that I need to fix. Even when you point out, you do this every week and you know, we have to have, we have, to have our time that we can do normal stuff like buy groceries. Mm -hmm. uh, even that fell on deaf ears. So the idea that, yeah, there, there was something wrong with the way she was behaving that was making me not want to see her 
was really, and I thought that. I thought, well, if I show that that's how serious I am and I mean it, then maybe we'll, we'll get somewhere. Maybe she'll say, okay, well, I guess that matters. Uh, but it didn't. And, you know, to this day, my stepfather doesn't understand mm-hmm. that there was a problem with her behavior, which, you know, I, the, she had a funeral and there were a dozen relatives there and maybe 10 other people at this funeral. And, you know, there were lots of people who knew her in town, but nobody wanted to come to the funeral. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are, little, there are little signs like that that you can pick mm-hmm. up on if you want to. But if you don't, if you'd rather think that somebody was just mean to her and, right. and, and you know, and, and the pain she felt was very real. I'm I mean, sure. I'm sure. She was in terrible right. pain from it. So right. he sees her in terrible pain. Well, and, people and in pain her. tend to cause other people pain. So, mm-hmm. and I can see why the boundaries just didn't work because that was the one thing she felt like she had some kind of trying to control And when you don't have control, then it just makes you go even further out there. So I'm sure that was just a feeling of complete loss of control for her. Right. Right. Which I'm sure just spiraled it completely out of control. Well, I, I, I am, like I say, I think it's amazing that you have turned out to be such a successful person with such a successful career and what sounds to me like a beautiful marriage to a beautiful person. And speaking of beauty, I was really happy that you included some photos in the back of the book because by the time I got to the end, I felt like I knew you guys. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like, oh, you know how sometimes you were reading a really good book and you get to the end and then you kind of miss the characters. So at the end, I was like really missing you guys. And so I was really happy that the the pictures were there. But thank you so much for writing this book. I think it's just amazing. It's just an amazing story and so many um, different levels of interest in this book. And thank you for being on my show. I appreciate so much you taking your time to talk to me. Is there any chance that you and Jennifer might write a, a continuation book of like what happens next? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know. You, you That's should. Kind of there should be a part two. Yeah, it just it doesn't have the drama, you know? It's like, ah, okay, it's nice now. And I don't I don't know if that makes for good literature. <laughs> you could try. I, I'd be willing to read the uh, first manuscript, so <laughs> all right. Well, yeah, that'll that'll uh I I'll I'll mention that. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> see what she thinks about maybe she wants to write the second book. Yeah, yeah. She That'd be uh great. She would be great at that, I'm sure. I'm sure she would. Well, thank you, Mark. And tell Jennifer that I really enjoyed this story. And thank you um, for sharing it with all of us. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for having me on today. Thanks for listening. Please rate and review so other people can learn about this podcast. Find out more about sleep, hygiene, eating healthy, tasty recipes, zero-waste lifestyle, and lots more on thatorganicmom.com. Help us spread the word. Be blessed and stay healthy.